During the Crimean War in the 1850s, Britain, France and Russia fought savage battles on the territory of modern-day Ukraine. It's a conflict that has parallels with the 2014 annexation of Crimea and, of course, the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine. Then, as now, an aggressive Russia sought to expand its territory. To talk about this, I'm joined by Dr Paul Huddy, committee member of the Irish Association of Professional Historians and coordinator of the International Network for Crimean War Studies. He's also the author of the 2015 book, The Crimean War and Irish Society. Um, Begin, Paul, if you would, by giving us an overview of the conflict. How did it get started? More to the point, why did it get started? Well, it started somewhat over a trivial aspect and a very local aspect. It was a conflict between the Orthodox clerics and the Catholic clerics in Jerusalem, of all places, and the Russian emperor at the time, Nicholas I, or Nicholas I, he decided that he needed to keep the influence over the Ottoman or the Turkish sultan in that respect. He wanted to make sure that he was the protector of all kind of Christian sites in the Ottoman Empire and give it all to the Orthodox Church. So he weighed in, said the Orthodox clergy should have the keys to the holy site. They should be the ones that maintain those holy places like where Jesus was born, where Jesus was killed, so on and so forth. And of course, we have a new emperor on the throne of France, Napoleon III, who thinks the Catholics should have it. So we have a small dispute in the Holy Lands, evolves into a major global war. They went to war. war over a bunch of keys. That was the issue and that was what they started with. But really what we have at play here is dominance on the big political world stage, where Russia wants to dominate Turkey and this is an in to do so. It was the Turkish Empire, the Ottoman Empire at that stage, already beginning to, to wane and to fade? It was very much seen so by the Russian Empire and he had been spending the last 10 years going around Europe, even visiting Queen Victoria in the 1840s, saying this is the sick man in Europe. He actually coined the phrase and said, we need to do something about this. It's definitely going to fall apart, I swear, and we need to be ready. Now, what we have is the Crimean War is the turning point in that and it gives it a bit of a boost that keeps it going until the First World War. Now, some people argue that the Crimean War is something of a misnomer because you've already used the term global war. How was it a global war? Absolutely. And, you know, there are many Crimean scholars who would now today try and push the term of the Russian War or the Great Russian War. Unfortunately, no one will know what they're talking about if we don't use the Crimean War. So, yes, absolutely a global war. And this is an idea that has been really posited by kind of imperial or naval historians like Andrew Lambert in London and other Canadian scholars in their recent scholarship over the last say 20 years and it because Russia is so big. If you want to attack it from all sides you have to go to the other side of the world. So the British and the French navies deployed themselves in the Crimea, they deployed themselves in the Black Sea, the White Sea which is a small sea up behind Finland and right over in the North Pacific attacking places like Vladivostok. Now, it was also, I suppose, in many ways, the first modern war when it comes to things like tactics, weaponry and strategy. What kind of new modes of warfare emerged from Crimea? Well, the big thing that scholars would like to say in terms of how we see this as a precursor or World War Zero is a term that has now started to be used, is we see heavy bombardment, say, around Sevastopol. We see trenches being dug in. We see the use of telegraphy. We see the use of steam trains and steam 
steam shipping is a huge thing. The reason that the Allies were able to fight such a big campaign far away was because Britain had the biggest shipping fleet in the world and Ireland was a part of that, of course. But we also see massive inefficiencies. I mean, the performance of, I don't know about the Russian generals, but certainly the performance of the British generals was absolutely lamentable. Absolutely. We have 40 years of peace, we have to remember, and Britain had not innovated its armed forces in that time. We actually had a divided British military establishment. So you had a minister for war and a minister at war. So one dealt with the army or the military during peacetime and the other dealt with it during wartime. You had you didn't have a centralised ministry of defence. You had horse guards which looked after certain things like the line infantry and you had the board of ordnance which looked after the engineers and the artillery. Now it was also a modern war in the sense that it was a media war to a considerable extent. You had photography for the, the first time. You you had uh, Fenton, for example, the, the, the photographer who played at footsie to some extent with with his subject matter. Um, it wasn't photoshopping, but it was the 1850s version of photoshopping. But, uh, you know, I mean, you're obviously uh, somebody who's very interested in the Crimea more from an Irish point of view. From an Irish point of view, the reporting of the war is very important, isn't it? Absolutely. We The great thing about this period for me and scholars of the period is that we at, this is the time when the paper tax is dropped. And then we see a boom in the publication of newspapers, bigger newspapers, more newspapers at local and national levels. So it provides a great wealth of sources for people to study the period. And it provided a huge outlet for consumption of the war. So people, regardless of whether you were in Ballygo backwards or you were in the metropolitan places like Dublin, Edinburgh or London or Paris, you could really know what was going on. And local papers would be printing letters from soldiers sent home and published by the families. They were reporting on people from the locality who had served, died, their experiences. And, you know, people really could learn from that. So they would know in Dublin, you know, they would be getting reports of what was happening with Scottish regiments or Scottish soldiers. And this would be happening vice versa. So we have so much media access at this time and reporting. And the telegraph is a huge thing. So you can get a notice Soon after, maybe the day after a battle has taken place, that it has taken place. You're not waking weeks or months to learn about it. You will have to wait for maybe a week for the full report to come back, but you do know that something has happened. And it did lead to great anxiety at times. So the first battle, the Battle of Alma in September 1854, once the telegraph came to notify people in Dublin that this happened, people were hanging out of the newspaper offices waiting for the full report to come. And the the big beasts, the Times, the London Daily News, for example, I mean, prior to Crimea, they would have been relying in the main on serving officers to send them dispatches. They would, you know, almost employ them as stringers, basically. That changes because the Times send out, you know, the man from Tala, uh, William Russell, and uh, the London Daily News have Edward Godkin, another another Irishman, both of them reporting uh, centrally and very importantly on the on the war. Absolutely. Like, these guys provide uh, a great complement to, to this more traditional thing of the letters coming back. And we didn't have any censorship at the time. This is the big difference between this and the First or Second World Wars, where what came back was immediately published and the government couldn't stop it. So, yes, you have the likes of Russell who are employed and specifically sent out there and they live with the soldiers. They can see firsthand what is happening and they are talking to them firsthand and getting their experiences. And again, it's it's no holds barred. Russell didn't pull his punches when he reported on what was going wrong 
in the Crimea as well as what was actually happening or going right. What did Irish people think of the of the war with Russia? Did, did they take much notice of it? There was huge interest in the war, as in Britain. France was a bit of a different case study. There was a bit kind of lukewarm reception to that, but Ireland and Britain went mad for it. Everyone wanted to know as much as they could, as quickly as they could. Newspapers were churning out story after story, anything kind of related to the East, about Ottoman Empire, about Russia, about Poland, or about the war itself, or individuals involved in it, would be published by kind of... 1854 into 1855, newspapers in Ireland were giving over about 50% of their coverage to something related to the war. You see dips in that, you see it waning near as the, the siege goes on in 1855. Uh, and then there's a flurry again at the end once Sebastopol falls. But it's a lot of, of interest. And again, that comes back to it being 40 years since Napoleon Bonaparte was defeated. And then there's a lot of perceptions about that, like liberals, for example, would see the war against Russia as a defence of Western European civilization or democracy. Conservatives saw it as preserving the status quo. Catholics were interested in it because Tsar Nicholas I was no friend of the Catholic Church. He was known as the non-flogger of Minsk. Irish Protestants were, weren't interested in him either because he had banned the sale of the Bible and he expelled Protestant missionaries from Poland. And so an equal opportunity is a Absolutely, a guy that everyone could hate. <laughs> But obviously the the Irish interest must have been stimulated by the fact that 19th century British army, uh, there was a huge number of of Irish soldiers. And and that number in the regular army is then augmented because you have militia involvement. Absolutely. As we said, that that interest that we see in the paper or just generally in the public sphere, driven by those letters coming back from Irish soldiers in the army. So, I mean, numbers vary because at this time, it's not until the 1860s that the British really pay attention to who's in the army, who's coming into the army and actually have proper recruitment intakes and surveys. But we we estimate this about 30 to 40%. Sources I came across in my studies were suggesting 40 Earlier reports, people were saying 30%. But yes, the militia is the principal recruitment tool during this time. They re-establish the militia in 1853, initially in response to fears that France is going to invade, and then it's actually completely reorientated towards Russia. But 10,000 Irishmen transfer from this reserve force, this militia, into the regulars. So what you have throughout the wartime is that regular recruitment sergeants will, will turn up to a county barrack somewhere, maybe Clonmel, Westport, wherever it is, the local county militias there doing their 28 days service in the summertime and they'll say, tell them wonderful stories about the glories of war out in Russia, get your medals, come back with, I don't know, all the treasures of the of the foreign lands and fellas will take the king's shilling there again and transfer into the regulars. And even the navy was just the same. Was there opposition to the war? There wasn't that much, and this is the very interesting thing. So you go you go 40 years down the line to the Boer War. I mean, that was a very, very divisive mm. uh, war where it, w- it was pitching Protestants against Catholics, Nationalists against Unionists. But this time, we have, we have no O'Connell. We have no Parnell. We're in this lull in the political sphere where it's a very generic time in Westminster, for example, where people are... are MPs are there fighting over or discussing or debating over local issues and issues of domestic importance. And again, because Tsar Nicholas I is someone that everyone has a bone to pick with, everyone's on the back of this war. The only ones in Ireland who actually oppose it, as in Britain, are the Quakers. The Society of Friends oppose all wars and they actively send out petitions into the public sphere, in the press, and actively try and convince people not to support the war. 
What legacy did the war leave in Ireland? Well, in terms of material legacy, we have over 70 war memorials dotted all over the country. I have found more memorials in 22 out of the 32 counties, and I'm sure there's a few more there or a few we've lost over the years. 33 um, Russian trophy cannon were brought back to Ireland. There were actually 2,000 taken by the Allies, uh, and Britain got about 1,200. We got a 33, that's what we asked for, and you can find them in public spaces all over the Ireland, be it Dunleary Harbour, be it formerly on Air Square but now outside the county offices in Galway or in Cove Harbour. It doesn't matter where you go, you'll find them somewhere and Church of Ireland churches have an awful lot of them. Plaques up on the walls, very beautiful sculptures memorialising uh, deceased officers killed in action. Who won the war? What was the outcome? Well, that is a debated thing. Um <laughs> Obviously, many will say that the Allies won the war, you know, especially the French. Um, the Sebastopol was taken, but it was only taken after the Russians withdrew from it. So you had a major assault upon the fortress of Sebastopol on the 9th, 8th and 9th of September 1855. Two major bastions, big fortifications on the walls were attacked by the British and the French simultaneously. That's the Redan and the Malakov. The Malakov was taken by the French. The Redan was not taken by the British. But because the Malakov was taken, the city, south side of the city, could not be held and the Russians withdrew that night. So we get in, but they hold the north side. So it becomes a divided city. And then eventually the economic effects of the blockade kick in and Russia has to sue for peace. Sanctions. Sanctions. <laughs> um, now, there have been a lot of commentators or commentary in the media comparing uh, Mr. Mr. Putin to Tsar Nicholas I, as you know, you've already described him, somebody that everyone that could hate. How historically accurate is that? Can you see parallels between the Crimean War of the 19th century and the current conflict in Ukraine? I mean, it's been said about, uh, about Putin that he wants to bring uh, Russia back to the 1980s, but realistically, he wants to bring Russia back to the 1880s, doesn't he? Absolutely. I mean, I'm no expert on, on Russian history, on Russian culture, and I'm a Crimean or a scholar, but one cannot help but see parallels. I mean, as you say, I mean, there are parallels between what Russia is now or what it is presenting itself as and what it was then. We had a single all-powerful leader who potentially misjudged a what was perceived to be a weaker neighbour and the resolve of Western powers to help defend that weaker neighbour. We have a, Ru a Russia that is trying to maintain or increase the internal influence over that weaker neighbour and to dominate that weaker neighbour. In 2014, as you mentioned earlier on, when this all kicked off, Britain had a coalition, a coalition for the first time pretty much since the um, Crimean War, with the exception of those unitary great, you know, Second World War governments and things like that. Uh, and, and, and again, it goes down to micro things like this idea of logistics. We're hearing that an awful lot in the media now. I mean, trying to get supplies in 1854, 55, 56 from Moscow, St. Petersburg, even from Warsaw down to the Crimean Peninsula was nigh impossible, especially in the winter and the autumn months. They were mud roads. Uh, and that's why the British had to build their own railway. And the Russians really struggled to get their, their supplies there in a similar way that they seem to be doing now. And then we mentioned sanctions there. As I said, this was a global war in 1854 to 56 because the British and the French deployed their navies at the most vital ports that the Russian Empire had and it stopped the flow of trade. The Russians couldn't trade with anyone or the Brits and the French would seize the ships and they would sell it themselves. So eventually, and this is what's been argued by the likes of Andrew Lambert, it was an economic war and it was won by the navy. And Tsar Nicholas died. 
1855. That may or may not be a parallel. Indeed. Well, we'll see about that. But absolutely, that was the reason why the war could come to an end. He would not have ended it. He had gone into that war determined to win it and he would have dug his heels in. Now, he did die in 1855 and his son was able to sue for peace once he had made his own little victory, as it were, within the Crimean sphere and... It wasn't his war. He didn't start it, but he could he could finish it. Whether we see a similar scenario play out now, that remains to be seen. So that becomes what they now call the off-ramp. My guest is Dr Paul Huddy, author of the book published in 2015, The Crimean War and Irish Society. Paul, thank you uh, for joining us to illuminate some of those parallels between the Crimean War and the current conflict in Ukraine. Mm-hmm.